0: From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 376 for the week of November 27th, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Bowling. Walt Disney once said, I believe that the spiritual and intellectual freedom which we Americans enjoy is our greatest cultural blessing. Therefore, it seems to me that the first duty of culture is to defend freedom and resist all tyranny. As we take time to honor our servicemen and women on Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day this December 7th, it is worth exploring how Walt Disney and the studio employees supported the United States and its allies in its fight against tyranny during World War II. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, Disney historian, David Lesjak, author of the book, Service with Character, the Disney Studio and World War II. David, welcome to the Diz Unplugged. Hello, Michael.
1: How are you today?
0: I'm fine. Thank you. And yourself?
1: I'm doing good, thank you. And hello to all your listeners.
0: Now, David, what was happening at the Walt Disney Studio prior to the outbreak of war in Europe in the fall of 1939?
1: Well, it was really an exciting time to be at the studio. Um, you know, the little studio started up at 2719 Hyperion Avenue back in 1925, and it had just grown exponentially. And um, by the late 1930s, the property was spread over about 22 different lots in the Las Fila section of Los Angeles, and it had just sort of grown in a hodgepodge manner. So the studio was looking at acquiring new property. So with the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, it was such a fantastic financial success that Walt Disney was able to acquire the 51 acres in Burbank and uh, build his new studio there. So everything was just running on all cylinders there. They were getting just fantastic reviews from the Silly Symphonies, from the Mickey Mouse cartoons. They had started using color. Um, Walt had branched out and was now doing the feature-length films, so Snow White was in the can. Pinocchio, Bambi, Fantasia—they were all in the works. So it was just a really, really exciting place to uh, to be working in the late 1930s.
0: Great, and I know that at that time as well, um, I believe there were a number of films in production, like Peter Pan, Wind in the Willows, Bongo, and Cinderella.
1: Yes, yes, and actually, Little Mermaid as well. Um, uh, people don't realize, but Little Mermaid was in production back then, or it was actually in the planning stages. Um, the illustrator Kai Nielsen, the European illustrator Kai Nielsen was working at the studio at that time, and him and Albert Herder and Gustav Tengren, they were sort of the concept guys. So there was artwork that was created for Little Mermaid at the time as well. But but yes, you're right, Peter Pan, Wind in the Willows, Bongo, Little Mermaid, Cinderella, they were all sort of in the the early stages. And you have to remember that there was those three other features that were in production at the same time. So, you know, they're working on uh, Pinocchio, they're working on Fantasia, they're working on Bambi. So, you know, it was a really, really busy time and there was you know there was close to i think it was fifteen hundred sixteen hundred people working for Walt Disney at that time
0: and also I think in your book you mentioned that the Disney Studios distributed films to fifty five countries
1: that's right it was um you know they had a they had a huge market so um, before the war um, Disney films were distributed to fifty five countries and then by around nineteen forty four so, you know, war is, you know, has been going on in Europe anyhow since 1939. Um, Canada, well, World War II actually started on September 1st, 1939. That's when the Germans invaded Poland and then, you know, they they started their march into the lowlands and, and eventually into France and, and that sort of a thing. So, um, Canada joined the war September 10th and then, of course, America joined the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. So, the war had already been going on for a year and a bit before America entered, but during that time, um, you know, theaters basically closed in France because of the war. So Disney lost a huge percentage of his bottom line because he couldn't distribute his films in Europe anymore. So by 1944, about 81% of the studio's box office, um, that revenue was being generated by only three countries. And it was basically three countries in, in the Western Hemisphere. It was the United States and Canada... Uh, if I recall, was about 56%, and I'm sorry, it's not all in the Western Hemisphere because England was the other one. They were still getting uh, about 25% of their revenue was being generated in England. So three countries only were generating 81% of the studio's box office, whereas prior to that, you know, they were distributing to 55 different countries. Um, We know that Snow White made an estimated $8.5 million. That That was their box office gross. Um, they made $2 million on Snow White in Europe. And then after the war started, um, they were only able to make 200000 on Pinocchio from Europe, and they got nothing out of Europe for Fantasia. So, you know, you go from making $2 million on Snow White to $200,000 for your next two feature-length films. Well, you can understand, obviously, then that that's a, a huge impact. And um, because the revenue wasn't coming in, you know, he's got to scale back operations. He abandoned all feature production. And um, I know that there was a, a report in a, in a newspaper in 1942 that basically said after the release of Bambi, there were there were going to be no more features put into production until at least a year after the war's projected end. So they were gonna they were going to continue with short production, but the feature production basically ground to a halt. After after Bambi Fantasia and Pinocchio were released,
0: <laughs> so when you know the, when we hear that Pinocchio and Fantasia were not initially a success, it wasn't because audiences weren't receptive to it. It was just that the overseas markets, which were the studio's profits, were not there anymore.
1: Exactly, I, I think that's the biggest reason. I think they, they're. As we know, obviously they're all great films, but there just wasn't a market to get those films into. And you know, there's only so much that 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 you can get out of your your own home market. You know, um, and and you depend a lot on distributing your films all around the world. And that's true today as well. You know, the studios make huge amounts of money from the From the worldwide releases of their films, and it was no different back in the 1930s, so you cut that huge chunk of money out of your out of your bottom line and yeah you you begin to suffer and, and you begin to have to lay off people and you begin to curtail production and it becomes a real financial strain and stress. you know can we even keep the studio afloat and you have to you have to remember on top of that that eight point five million is gross, so disney didn 't get all of that money out of Snow White. That was gross. Those profits had to be shared with the film distribu- distributors, and, and there were prints that had to be paid for. They paid for their negatives from, from Technicolor. You know, that came out of their pocket as well. So there's huge expenses to just getting those films distributed and, and into the marketplace. And um, all that money, just, it just disappears. And, and what do you do? There's nothing that you, you really can do except curtail production. And then that, I think, sort of leads into a downward, you know, a downward spiral. Uh, That's really, really hard to recover from.
0: Now, on December 7th, 1941, as you mentioned, the United States naval facilities at Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japanese forces, bringing the United States officially into the war. And then the next day, December 8th, brought an invasion of sorts upon the Walt Disney Studios, and 500 troops moved into the studio. So why did the military take over the Walt Disney Studios?
1: A couple of reasons. Um, I guess the first is that Lockheed was a next-door neighbor of Disney, and Lockheed was a a war defense plant manufacturing airplanes, and the second was space. So you have a a war contractor next door, and then you've got the space to accommodate the troops. So the troops that moved in were from a local anti-aircraft unit, and what they did was they basically took over. So now we're in Burbank. Uh, they basically took over the sound stages at the Disney Studio, and then they took up living quarters space as well. So they basically phoned Walt Disney, his studio manager phoned him at home and said, "Hey, Walt, um, you know uh, the army wants to move in," and I told them that I'd have to talk to you. And the military man said, "Well, go ahead and talk to Walt, but we're still moving in." And um, so what they did was on the sound stages they would repair and work on the optical equipment for their anti-aircraft guns as well as their trucks. Um, they ended up storing about three million rounds of ammunition in the parking sheds in the parking lot. Um, and then the men were billeted at the studio as well, so they took up every available space. Uh, it became their, their living quarters. Now, that said, you know, Walt Disney was, was, fine to have them, was fine to have them stay, and, and the studio actually did a lot of things to support those troops that were living at the base that, or at the studio at that point in time. I know that they had a special dance with the girls from Ink and Paint, or the ladies, I should say, from Ink and Paint came out, and they had a sort of a dance with the boys. And then they, um, they also did some fundraising by selling some of their own personal art that they would have created, paintings and things like that. And then with that money that they raised, they would buy candy and cigarettes, those types of things for the troops that were, that were there. So, you know, it was really, I think, I don't know if it was a welcome intrusion, but, but Walt Disney, you know, being the patriot that he was, he, he was fine with that. I believe they stayed for about uh, eight months before they moved out. Um, I guess people came to the realization that there was no threat of a Japanese invasion on the mainland, so the troops sort of stood down and were redistributed to other areas um, in, in the surrounding Los Angeles area. But um, initially it, it came as quite a shock, I think, to have all those military men working, uh, working at the studio.
0: Now, many of the Disney studio employees answered the call of duty in World War II, because I know that the Disney studio had its own service flag, and I believe yeah. um by uh, and and perhaps you can explain to our listeners who are especially our younger ones what what was the service flag
1: sure so so service flags hung in the windows and and uh, on the walls of of businesses all across America in residential homes as well um. It was a tradition that that originated back in in World War One, where if you were a family and that you had somebody serving overseas, you you hung a flag in your window, and that flag featured a blue star in the middle of it, and that that blue star, every blue star on that flag, represented a loved one that was serving in the military. So the Disney Studio was no different. You know, um, a lot of a lot of uh, Disney staffers were either enlisted voluntarily or they were drafted into the military. So for example Frank Thomas, you know one of the nine old men he was with the first motion picture unit out of uh, Culver City so the first motion picture unit they did training films for the Air Force so there was a lot of, a lot of, excuse me, a lot of Disney people went to work for that unit a lot of Warner Brothers people went to work for that unit uh, Wolfgang Riedermann who was a, a director, he was attached to the aircraft ferry command at Long Beach um, special effects animator Cy Young he served in a signal corps unit and actually, if anybody's lucky enough to get a copy of it, there's a little booklet that was produced called Dispatch from Disney's," and it was done in 1943, if I recall. And that booklet was a newsletter that was sent out to Disney employees that were serving in the military. And it's quite a neat little booklet because it was printed on um, the Los Angeles newspaper presses. It's very, very high quality, and it's got stories and a letter from Walt, a letter from Roy, a letter from Mickey. It tells you some of the projects that they're working on. So one of the most interesting things about that booklet is in the middle it has a gatefold pinup, and these pinup girls were drawn by Milt Call and Freddie Moore. And on the reverse of the gatefold pinup, it has a list of at that point in time all of the Disney employees that were in the military, what military unit they were attached to, and the mailing address for that for that particular military unit. So it's a it's a quite an interesting document because it just shows how many how many people at the studio were now serving. So by 1944, the studio had their own service flag, and by 1944, that service flag had 165 stars on it. So there were 165 members of the Disney studio that were serving in some capacity. And the breakdown was something like um, 85 Army, uh, just under 50 in the Navy, 21 were with the Marine Corps, there were seven waves, two merchant Marines, and one... Uh, women's aircraft uh, service pilot. So there were a lot of studio employees that, that had either voluntarily enlisted or, or had been drafted. The other interesting thing about the service flag, it, it actually hung in a second-floor window right across from the theater. So anytime you came out of the theater, you could see the service flag hanging there. And the service flag actually had five gold stars on it as well, and the gold stars represented a person that had been killed in the uh, in the line of duty. So the guys that had been killed at that point in time were a fellow named Burdette Sikora. He was um, um, an assistant director. There was Gerald James. He was in animation. James was actually mentioned in the dispatch from Disney's newsletter. He was flying a bombing mission. Uh, he had just been home on um, a little bit of leave, a little bit of holiday, and then he had gone back overseas to rejoin his unit, and he was reported as miss- missing in action his plane was shot down, and his body washed up on the shores of um, on the shores of France. Um, another fellow that was killed was uh, John Layton Jr. He worked out at the disney's New York office uh, Robert Squire. he was in the cutting and editing department, and then a fellow named Bernard Walmsley he worked in the in the traffic department, delivering mail and that sort of thing. So it was um, you know nobody has ever been able to find that service flag. Nobody knows what's happened to it. The Walt Disney Family Museum doesn't have it. the Walt Disney Archives doesn't have it. So nobody knows exactly what happened to that service flag. If somebody took it home um, after the war or if it was bundled up and put in a box and is in an attic somewhere, uh, nobody knows. It was actually put together by uh, two of the ladies in ink and paint. They spent their free time putting that flag together. So it would be really interesting to to find that flag because I think um, just for the emotional impact and, and what it represents, but... Um, yeah, they were, and, and a lot of businesses had that service flag, that type of service flag, displayed at their facilities because mm-hmm. World War II was really a war that everybody participated in. If you didn't serve overseas, then you really pitched in and did your part on on the home front. So, right.
0: and uh, and Disney employees did participate in a lot of the um, home front activities.
1: Yes, they did. You know, uh, they were just like every other you know normal American. So they purchased bonds. And they were purchasing, you know, the average studio salary at that point in time was just under $2,000 a year. It was around 1700 or so dollars per year. And, and studio employees were purchasing bonds at the rate of $3,500 per week. So they were, really, they were really, you know, supporting the war effort that way. And I believe it was uh, somewhere around 90%, 91% of staff were, were, were purchasing war bonds at the time. Um, I know that the Red Cross Mobile Blood Bank, they showed up at the studio a couple of times. Um, actually, I think it was three visits. They took about 420 pints of blood out of the arms of willing Disney employees. And there's actually a publicity picture that shows Walt Disney getting stuck uh, to get some blood drawn from him. Um, they also donated, staff also donated um, around $7,000 to the Red Cross. And they, they donated about $5,500 to the, the Los Angeles Community War Chest so they really, you know, they really stepped up the plate, just like most Americans and most citizens of all the allied countries to support their troops and, and support the war effort.
0: Now, during the war, the, the studio artists and animators who made Snow White and Pinocchio now produced training films for the military and propaganda and morale films. So what type of training films did the studio produce?
1: Well, before they did the training films, they actually, uh, Disney produced a film called um, Four Methods of Flush Riveting, which was a film he did in 1941 for his neighbor Lockheed. And then what happened was, a fellow by the name of John John Grierson, he was the commissioner of the National Film Board of Canada. So he saw those films, and, or he saw that one film, Four Methods of Flush Riveting, and he thought, well, maybe the Disney studio can do something for the government of Canada. So what uh, what he did was he, he visited Walt Disney and like I said Canada had been at war um, since September the 10th 1939. So Canada was all revved up. Their their men were being her men were being trained. You know her her shipyards were building uh, naval vessels. Canada had one of the largest navies. It was either the second or third largest navy during World War II. Um, Canada participated in all the major battles that sort of thing. So. So what Grierson did was he approached Walt Disney with the idea of doing a training film and some Bond films. So um, before the war even even um, started, uh, because I guess the Canadian government saw that there was uh, you know war clouds on the horizon. No, actually, I'm sorry, I stand corrected. It was in August of 1941, so the war had been going on for almost two years, and that's when they had the letter of agreement between the National Film Board of Canada and the studio to do five films. And so what they did was they produced four Bond films, and they did one training film. So the first Bond film was called Thrifty Pig, and because of the um, uh, financial restraints, what they did was they reused animation from Three Little Pigs. And in that film, that Bond film, The Big Bad Wolf, was redrawn as a Nazi, while the Three Little Pigs became um, loyal Canadian citizens. And uh, one one of the lines from the song goes, Who's afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? The union jack still waving, will be safe from the big bad wolf if you lend your savings. And the film closed with this, buy five bonds for the price of four, which was a, a promotion um, that the Canadian government ran. And that five for four slogan appeared at the end of each of the four um, bond films. And it, it referred to the government's offer of, you would get a five dollar bond certificate for the price of four dollars. So Thrifty Pig was released to theatres in December 1941, and there was about 150 prints that went into uh, circulation. And the film was so widely accepted that the Australian and the English governments both expressed an interest in in having copies of that film sent to them so they could present it to their Denvians as well. Um, Canada was part of the Commonwealth at that point in time and still is, and so was Australia and then, of course, Mother England, So there wouldn't have had to have been very many changes to the film, Um, you know, just that five-for-four slogan sort of at the end, but the the whole crux of the film, because Canada's flag at that point in time was still the Union Jack. um, There weren't very many changes that would have had to have been changed. Um, The second Bond film that was done for the Canadian government was called Seven Wise Dwarfs, and it reused animation from the Diamond Mine sequence of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And in that film... Um, the dwarfs are shown leaving their mind and they take their jewels to the post office, and they traded them in for saving stamps. And after what you did with your saving stamp is, you put it in your little booklet, and once you had enough saving stamps, you would redeem that booklet for the associated dollar value bond. And in that in that show the the uh, in that short the uh, the dwarfs sing, hi ho, hi ho, we always help you know, we'll do our part with all our heart, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho hi-ho, we always help you know, we'll win the war with 544, with 544, hi-ho, 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 and on it went. (laughs) Well, that film, um, it was shipped to the National Phil Board in December of 1941, and it went into circulation. Uh, The third Bond film was titled Donald's Decision, and it used footage from the short cartoon Donald's Better Self, and in that short, Donald engaged in this sort of mental battle with the devil and an angel over how to spend his money, and um, they have this you know big tug and t- tug of war back and forth, and and eventually Donald does the right thing, of course, and he decides to to invest in in um, in war bonds. Uh, the fourth war bond was called All Together, and that one was just sort of a basic thing. It didn't really have too much of a story. All it did was it, it featured seventeen Disney characters. And they marched past the Canadian Parliament buildings and they all held you know signs and placards and banners and balloons and that sort of thing. And all of all of the banners and that they read, All Together for War Savings, get five for four, all together for war savings. So in conjunction with the Bond films, the studio also had Hank Porter, Disney artist Hank Porter, created the artwork for a, a savings certificate folder. And that folder on the cover pictured Donald Duck stoking a fire while Mickey was standing on top of a lion, which represented England, and he was stirring the the contents of a big cauldron that was on top of the fire, and the cauldron was labeled War Savings. And uh, the caption under the illustration read, Keep the Pot a-Boiling. And so that was one of those little saving stamps folders that people would buy their little saving stamps at the post office, glue them into that booklet, and then turn the booklet in for actual stamps. The other thing that the Disney Company did at that point in time was create a, a training film for the boys' anti-tank rifle, the Mark I anti-tank rifle, because it had developed a bad reputation on the battlefield, and it was actually quite a quite a powerful little anti-tank gun for its time. And so, um, you know, the Canadian military wanted to uh, make sure that the troops knew how to operate it properly and knew that it was actually an effective weapon on the battlefield. So we had the four methods of flush. Riveting, which was the first film, and then we had the four Bond films for the Canadian government, the training film for the Canadian government, and then the American Navy contacted Disney in 1941. They they had actually been in in contact with Disney a little bit before World War II broke out. Um, But in 1941, they um, um, contacted the Disney studio, and they wanted a series of films done called... um, Wings, Engine, Fuselage, and Tail. It was known as the West series. Some people called it Wings, Engine, or no, uh, Wrong Every F-Bomb Time. So that was the, you know, people said that the films weren't that great and they sort of referred to it as that slang, but they were, they were very well-produced films, and there was a whole series of them on how to identify enemy aircraft just based on the wing, the engine, the fuselage on the tail, the silhouette of the airplane that you could see in the air. But that series of films that the, the studio did for the, um, for the Navy, that really started the, the floodgates. It opened the floodgates to all the other military training films that the studio eventually embarked on.
0: Now, in 1943, some of the most well-known anti-Nazi propaganda films were released by the Walt Disney Studios, like Reason and Emotion, Chicken Little, Education for Death, De um, Fuhrer's Face, and Victory Through Air Powers. What can you tell us about these films?
1: Well, the, the studio called them, uh, what did they call them, psychological, psychological features, I think. And um, they were they were all done... Um, with the help of funding from the coordinator of inter-American affairs, so that was Nelson Rockefeller, and um, Nelson Rockefeller contacted Walt Disney um, in May of 1941, and and I might be jumping a little bit ahead of the gun here, but um, Rockefeller contacted the studio in 1941 when the strike was going on, and he he invited Walt Disney to tour the South American countries, um, the CIAA. The, the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, they were basically in charge of, I guess it was basically a propaganda outfit for the federal government, and they were in charge of, of trying to promote American culture and American films in Central and South America. And at that point in time, there was a real failure on the behalf of other Hollywood producers that sort of talked down to the South and Central American cultures, and they sort of treated them um, they, they sort of denigrated them a bit in some of the films that were shown down there. Um, I guess the, the hol- some of the Hollywood producers really didn't understand the culture and the customs. And, and some of the, the things that they did in the films were, were really viewed negatively. So Rockefeller approached Disney and, and basically extricated him from the, the horrible situation at the studio, which was the, the strike that was going on. And and they signed an agreement, and and basically Rockefeller said, look, your pictures are popular down in South America. There's a Nazi influence that that we want to offset, and perhaps you can do that through some of your films. So how about if we fund a trip down, you go down there and and do some research and and see what you can do. So in in August of 1941, um, Disney, his wife Lillian, and about 16 or 17 artists um, went down to South America. And so they visited uh, Brazil, Argentina, Peru, Chile, Bolivia, Mexico. Um, they gathered up information. And, and the end result of that trip was The Three Calvieros and mm-hmm. Saludos Amigos. And um, they also did a bunch of other films that, that weren't necessarily entertainment films. They were just sort of, you know, how to do sanitation, um, how to grow... Crops properly, you know those sort of self-help types of,
0: of films as well. Yeah, I had no idea it was so popular to relieve oneself in cornfields because well, that was, I, that that was a big thing in some of those films was building yeah, and, latrines.
1: Yeah, and and to some degree, a lot of that still goes on today, and and some of that goes on in countries like China. When you get into very very rural areas, they they use human excrement as fertilizer. And um, but yeah, the the studio did a whole series of sort of personal hygiene films, keeping your hands washed, how to get rid of uh, you know mosquitoes, how to how to have uh, like you say proper latrines built, um, uh, safe water, all those sorts of things. Um, out of the contract from the, the CIAA um, came the the propaganda films that you talked about. Um, so there were five of them, and they were all. Overtly anti-Nazi propaganda films. The studio's publicity department actually referred to them as psychological productions. So we had Reason and Emotion, uh, Chicken Little, Education for Death, Drafuer's Face, and Victory Through Air Power. So the CIAA helped finance the first four films, and then Disney funded the uh, the fifth one, Victory Through Air Power, out of his own pocket. So my favorites out of those ones are are Drafuer's Face. It's hilarious. It won an Academy Award in 1943, um, and it basically portrays Donald Duck as a worker in a German munitions factory. And so he's screwing the little fuses on the tops of of artillery shells and bombs as they're coming down the um, coming down the conveyor belt. And interspersed with these munitions are are portrait pictures of Adolf Hitler. Every time a picture of Hitler rolls by on the conveyor belt, he's got to give the old you know how Hitler salute <laughs> and And at one point in time, Donald's working so hard, they say, okay, you know, uh, because of the goodwill of Dr. you get a vacation. Well, Donald's vacation is a a cloth backdrop of a barbarian mountain scene falls down behind him, and then he has to do calisthenics. And the calisthenics (laughs) can port his body into all sorts of weird shapes, including the Nazi swastika. And so then, okay, your vacation's over. It's back to work. And so, you know, off he trundles back to the conveyor belt. Well, the problem is now the conveyor belt's running 100 miles an hour. And he's jumping on the shelves, twisting uh, the fuses down with his feet with his hands he he just can't keep up and then bang he has a mental breakdown and it's all uh, like you know the pink elephant sequence from Dumble where exactly. he's got all the weird weird things that are happening yeah. to him and and um and then he comes out of the daze and and he sort of comes to and he sees the 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 Zikhail arm outreach salute shadowed on the wall and so he he jumps up and he does the zig hi and then he realizes, no, he's back home in bed, and what he's seeing on the wall isn't an outstretched Zaykal salute. It's actually the flame from the Statue of Liberty. He had a little Statue of Liberty uh, um, knickknack, for lack of a better word, on his uh, on his windowsill. And so then you know he closes out. You know, am I ever glad to be a citizen of the United States of America?
0: And I learned about this short when I was a boy because the Spike Jones song "De Fears Face" was still popular. Oh, and it, was a,
1: it, it was a hugely popular song, and there was a fellow by the name—I uh, think his name was Martin Block—and he played it on the radio, and it became so popular he decided to do a, a bond drive, and so. You know, after a certain level of bonds were raised at the radio station, he would play the song, and um, it became all the rage. Bluebird Records—it was one of the best-selling records of its time—and Bluebird couldn't keep up with the record orders, and they couldn't keep up with the sheet music orders for that film. Um, Spike Jones and his band, the City Slickers, they turned it into a uh, just a huge hit, and it, it was the number one-selling record, I believe, until I think it was the Yellow Rose of Texas. Uh, came along and supplanted it. But it was it was a huge hit at the time. It was being played in all the clubs. It was being played on, on all the radio stations. Um, it was just a, a, a phenomenal song. Oliver Wallace actually wrote the song, and he based it on a, uh, I think it was a loose adaptation of Happy Birthday to You, or it was something like that. I can't remember. But um, he ran it past his, his two daughters, and they thought it was just the cat's meow, and so he, he knew he had a winner. He was a little wary when he first sang it to, to Walt, uh, for the first time, they passed in the hallway, and Walt goes, Hey, Ollie, how's that, uh, how's that song coming along? And he goes, Well, great. And he goes, Well, well, sing it for me. What do you got for me? And Ollie said, Well, there's this little thing in it. I'm not sure. I got to work on it some more. And you know how Walt was, right? He would just, you know, well, you give it to me. Tell me. Show me. Sing it to me. So it was the, the raspberry, the Bronx, you know, the, we, we hile, hile right in the viewer's face. And Walt just thought that was just the funniest thing, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. So, you know, it really turned out to be a to be a huge hit for the studio. The other films were more were, were much more of a serious nature. You know, you have you have uh, Chicken Little, which was by, based on the fairy tale of the uh, the same name. So you've got uh, Foxy Loxy, who's the the fox that that convinces everybody that the leader of the coop doesn't know what he's talking about, and and Chicken Little should be the real leader. And then and then the fox picks up. Uh, there's an astrological advertisement on a billboard, and he picks a star off of the billboard, a little wooden star that had been nailed to the billboard as part of the advertisement. He picks it off the billboard and throws it down onto to Chicken Little's head, and then he, he pops in, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, Chicken Little. It's not safe to be in the in the barnyard in the chicken coop. You've got to come to my cave. You'll be safer there. So, you know, Chicken Little, in his little panic, uh, manages to convince everybody that, yeah, it's not safe in the, in the chicken coop, and we better get to Foxy Loxy's cave, well, you know, at the very end of the film foxy Loxy's uh basically enjoying chicken dinners so that one was a little more serious uh reason and emotion i've never really delved too much into it um it, it never really appealed to me um education for death is a very dark dark film that's that probably it talks, the
0: most disturbing disney yeah. film i have ever seen
1: yeah it's, it's very dark you know you've got a little boy named hans that 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 is born and and um um, the book was actually based on uh, a book written by Gregor Zimmer, and it was called "Education for Death: The Making of a Nazi." And basically, in Disney's film, it, it follows the premise of the book, you know it follows the life of a little German boy from birth to manhood, um, his indoctrination into the Nazi fold, and then, and then his ultimate death in combat. And it, the, you know the film really shows how the Germans took control of life. You know, right from the moment the child was was born, to the point where the the parents were told what to name their newborn child, it and even
0: hints hint- at anti-Semitism in Pardon it. With me? the it even hints at the anti-Semitism oh, that was sure. going on with the uh, you know the approved names.
1: Yes, yes, and, and not only that, but you know the the, the Nazis had a, a program where they actually euthanized people that had mental illness and and had had chronic disease um had you know if you were born with a deformity if you had polio for example and you had the hump on your back they would euthanize people like that and at one point in time in the film you know little hands get sick and his mother gets a visit from the gestapo saying you know don't fuss over your child you know sickness is a weakness and then you know even in school as they're they're studying you know the laws of of nature and natural history uh, the children witness a fox eating a rabbit and as all of his other little schoolmates are, are happily applauding the actions of the fox, Hans is sympathizing with the rabbit, uh, because the rabbit's being eaten. And, and Hans is severely rebuked by his teacher, and, and he's being reprimanded. And then after he was reprimanded, he, he quickly gives the correct response. You know, I hate the rabbit. The rabbit is weak. He's no Nazi rabbit. And then, you know, by the end of the film, we've got, you know, poor little Hans has been completely brainwashed, and now he's marching off to war as a member of the Hitler Youth, and then you know, as the, the, the children are marching, they turn into a, they metamorphosize into a group of marching soldiers, and then those marching soldiers are turned into a graveyard of crosses. So it's really, it's really a dark film, and, and it's interesting because in that film, the, the studio interjected a humorous sequence, and it's called um, The Fairy Tales of the New Order. Oh. And in that sequence, you've got a caricature of Hitler who's being depicted as Prince Charming and he's he's awoken this rather rob, robust blonde-haired sleeping beauty type lady named Germania and as wagner's ride of the valkyrie is played in the background you know hitler's loading this overweight germania onto his horse which sort of staggers off into the off into the uh, off into the distance
0: yes as so, as, he, as he takes um germany for a ride
1: Exactly. Think, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, all of those films were, were quite interesting. Um, like I said, all but one were financed by the the uh, CIA. A. Victory Through Air Power came right out of Walt's pocket. Um, it was based on the book by Major Alexander Gysaversky. He was a, a, a ex-Russian patriot who uh, became an American citizen. The guy was a genius when it came to airplanes and airplane technology. He was way ahead of the curve. He had um, you know, 101 patents to his name, so to speak. Everything from uh, superchargers on engines. Uh, he just he invented a myriad of things. He was an air racer. He had he had been shot down. He had lost a leg uh, when he was shot down in combat. Um, so Disney acquired the rights to his book and 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 embarked on a project to to turn that book into a film. It was probably one of the least successful of the of the propaganda films. Um, you know, it was sort of scary and I don't see how children could sit through it because at the very end of the film you know Sabersky's whole thing was basically you know hit the center uh, long range bombers hit the center of production and then you know the outlying posts will wither away because they can't be supplied with, with um, rations and war material and at the very end of the film you know they, they've got the American eagle and they've got in the South Pacific this, this caricature of this, this big menacing octopus which represents Japan and the octopus's tentacles have reached out and has its tentacles, you know, wrapped around all these outlying islands and outposts. And then you've got the the American eagle just pouncing on the, the octopus's head. And it's actually a, a, quite a terrifying sequence to watch. And, and I don't see how anybody could take their child to that film. Number one, it's a fairly dry topic, you know. It's, mm-hmm. It is a propaganda film because it's, it's extolling the virtues of, of long-range bombers. But um, to have that final sequence with the, the American Eagle just pouncing on that octopus's head, it's, it's, it's quite terrifying to watch. Yeah.
0: Now, for our listeners who collected the Walt Disney Treasures series in the tins, if you have Walt Disney on the front lines, the Warriors, you can view all of these films that um, David just Spoke about, and I suspect we'll probably never see these released again. So, if you can get your hands on on these DVDs, they are well worth adding to your collection. A, a really good, a really good, uh, just you know, part of our history, and and it also contains the 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 um, the Donald Duck and Pluto sort of morale um, cartoon shorts that were released in theaters.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the studio, you know, during the war, they were able to keep up with some, some short production, although it, it, it dropped off drastically. Um, but yes, you know, a lot of the cartoons had had sort of a, a, a war theme. So you know, you had Donald Duck and Sky Trooper, where he's learning to become a an airborne, a member of the airborne. Um, you have Donald Duck in Fall In, Fall Out, where he's a member of the army. You have Goofy and How to Be a sailor, sailor, which is sort of self-explanatory. You have Minnie Mouse. I think her short was called um, Out of the Frying Pan, where she shows how, you know, as a as a dutiful housewife, when you're cooking up your ration supply of bacon, you know, save the grease, because the grease can be turned into, you know, glycerin, which can be used in munitions.
0: Every skillet of grease is a little munitions factory.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You've watched the film. I have. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating to see how much the studio really participated in the war effort. Now, by you know, by some means, they didn't have a choice because it was their only source of income. You know, Walt Disney never made a profit off of the government. Everything was done at cost. Well, Roy used to get mad because the at cost doesn't include any of your overhead. So it doesn't include light, it doesn't include electricity, it never included that thing. That cost was just the cost to make the film as far as labor and supplies went. And, um, you know, it was a way for Walt Disney, number one, to be patriotic, which he was. He was a a hugely patriotic American. But it was was a way to keep his studio afloat because he was able to keep his men employed. He was able to keep the studio open because these government contracts, while they didn't make him any, any profit, it kept his people employed so, you know, and not only did they do, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but not only did they do these, these films, but they did a myriad of things for the home front, and they, did a, uh, they designed a myriad of combat insignia for mm-hmm. not only American u- units, but Chinese units, Canadian units, Australian units, uh, French units. Um, y- you know, they really, went, they really went all out. They really went all out for the war effort.
0: Now, how did the public react to seeing the beloved Disney characters in these propaganda films? And
1: well, I think they—they, they, um, I, I think it was just the, the normal reaction as to as as to when they would have seen some of the Disney features. You know, it was Disney characters that they were familiar with, and and I think it was maybe maybe there was a sense of well, if they're doing their part, maybe we should do our part, or. You know, I know the combat insignia, they it it was a reminder of home. You know, not every combat insignia had a Disney character, but Walt Disney really supported the requests for combat insignia that came into the studio, because you have to remember, a lot of the guys in the 1940s that were now off on foreign soil, fighting and dying, that was the same generation that supported Walt Disney in the early 1930s when Mickey Mouse first came out. So you have these kids who were 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they were buying the Mickey Mouse merchandise that Kay Kamen was licensing, they were attending the, the Disney films at the theaters, and they were members of the Mickey Mouse Club, the 1930 Mickey Mouse Club. A lot of people don't know how big and how successful that 1930 Mickey Mouse Club was. There were more kids in the Mickey Mouse Club than there were in the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts combined there were theaters that would have anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 kids that were members of the theater. And they had their own little ritual. They, they elected uh, uh, officers every month. So there was a chief Mickey, a chief Minnie, a standard bearer, a song leader, a cheerleader, master of ceremonies. And they would come to the club. Membership was free, but you still had to pay your dime to get in. But you would get a card. You would get a generic pinback button with, you know, the Mickey Mouse on it. You could buy a little fez and a little vest that had the Pats on it, and they had this whole routine where they would go to the theater. They would do their club business. They would do their pledge of allegiance to the flag. They would say the Mickey Mouse Club Creed. They would have announcements. They would have a little talent show, and then they would show a whole a whole program. So they would have a serial like Buck Rogers. They would have the Mickey Mouse or Disney cartoon, and then they would have you know. The, the child-friendly feature, feature-length feature show as well. So Walt Disney, really, when he was doing Insignia, his mindset, I think, was, well, you know what? Those kids really supported me when I had first started up Mickey Mouse in the 1930s through the clubs, through the merchandise, through going to watch the cartoons. So me doing Insignia for them is the least I can do.
0: <laughs> so how did they get involved? How did the studio get involved in doing the Insignias? Because I, well, I don't think a lot of people know that they did that. They did... Um, Yeah, they did insignias not only for the United States, but for its allies.
1: Yeah, for pretty much almost every allied country as well. And um, the very first insignia came in in 1939, if I recall, and it was sent in by a a cadet named... um, uh, What was his name here? Just give me one second. Anyhow, this cadet wrote to Walt Disney. Um, He was a member... uh, um, of, um, yeah, Cadet Stanley was his name. I don't know his first name. His last name was Stanley. He was a member of um, CV-7, which was the aircraft carrier USS Wasp. And he was part of the um, Fighting 7, which was the naval Air Squadron that was based aboard the carrier. So he sent Disney a request in June of 1939. He was a reserve aviation cadet. And he basically said, you know, uh, it would be nice if you could maybe design us a, a combat insignia to go on our airplanes. So the design that was done was a boxing wasp. And that was the very first, that was the very, very first design that, that the studio created. And then the next one that came in was for the um, the Mosquito Fleet. That came in in May 19, 1940. And the Mosquito Fleet was the the fleet of patrol torpedo boats that were in the South Pacific at the time. They were based in the Philippines in Corregidor. And um, that unit actually evacuated uh, General Douglas MacArthur and the Philippine president out of Corregidor when the Japanese were were threatening military action that eventually did come. And that insignia features... um, um, a torpedo that's just been launched, so it's sort of flying through the air, about to hit the water. And perched on top of the uh, torpedo is a mosquito, and that was insignia number two. And and once it became known that the Disney Studio was do- designing combat insignia, the studio was just flooded with requests. And by war's end, there was over one thousand two hundred designs that Disney had done for free for combat units all over the world, and and some of them are quite quite interesting and some of them are quite unique and some of them have just amazing stories that go with them some of the things that i've done with the insignia is i've, I've done a lot of research i've tried to track down men whose unit had a disney designed combat insignia and to a tee, all of them said you know it's something that reminded us of, of home it was a huge morale booster everybody and say for example if you were a member of a a a bombardment squadron within a larger bombardment group, if your squadron had a Disney-designed combat insignia, you were the envy of every other man in in every other squadron that was attached to that group. And that was a a common theme that I heard when when I've talked to, to men whose unit had one of these designs. It was just a huge morale booster. It was something that reminded them of home. You know, if it wasn't a Disney character, it was still done by the Disney Studio, and and all of them were impressed that Disney would take the time to do something like that for them. Um, there's some very famous units that had Disney Combat insignia, the Flying Tigers. Flying
0: Tigers, yeah.
1: You know, the volunteer force of American pilots who were who were contracted by the Japanese government, uh, by the Chinese government, to fight the Japanese in China. Um, they had they had a Flying Tiger, and it was designed by. Gag man, uh Roy Williams. So Roy Williams came up with that idea, and then Disney artist Hank Porter, he's the one that sort of uh, refined the idea. And that was a huge hit. Um, the HMS uh, Illustrious, the British Aircraft Carrier, it had been damaged in Malta uh, by an air raid, and it was sent to a dry dock in Virginia for repairs. And when it was in dry dock, uh, Mountbatten, who was the great grandson of Queen Victoria, he embarked on sort of a goodwill tour across America, and one of the stops he made was at the Disney Studio, and he actually popped in on Hank Porter, who was doing designs, had a little visit, and say, hey, I'd like one of those for for my ship, because he was commanding officer of the Illustrious, and what what uh, Porter designed for him was uh, a Donald Duck wearing an admiral's cap standing in some water with a toy aircraft carrier, and in his hand, he had made the motion of an airplane taking off from the deck of the aircraft carrier. Um, there was another famous insignia that was done for Stalag Luft Three. Now, your listeners might be familiar with Luft Three. if anybody's familiar with the Steve McQueen movie, The Great Escape. That's where The Great Escape took place, was at Stalag Luft 3 It was a German prisoner of war camp that housed... Um, allied airmen that had been shot down. And the design for that, uh, it's not a unit, I guess, but for that prisoner of war camp was Donald Duck behind jail bars, and the caption read, Stalag Lift 3, I wanted wings. And that saying, I wanted wings, usually when an airman was captured, their lapel insignia that they had was wings. They would cut one side of the wing off to show that they had clipped wings, that they were no longer able to fly because they were prisoners. So that's how the I wanted wings slogan sort of came about. It took me over five years to research that design. And I finally found the prisoner of war that created the original design. So what happened one day in 1943 or 44, Walt Disney got a a postcard on his desk and it said, um, you know, see if you can get Disney's permission to turn these into patches. Well, that postcard had originated at Lift 3, and it was sent to, the guy's name was Robert Bishop. He was a captain in the United States Army Air Force. He had been shot down. He had seen the design, the the Donald Duck design, on another postcard in the camp. He had copied it onto his postcard, sent it to his girlfriend, and said, could you see if Disney could make some patches for us? The girlfriend sent that postcard to Walt Disney, entered into correspondence with the girlfriend, and had Hank Porter create the finished design. The, he cleaned up the design, you know, made Donald look more like Donald, and, and that sort of thing. But it's basically the same design, just cleaned up. And then he sent the artwork to the the girlfriend. By the time she received it, lift three had closed down the the men in that camp were forced marched to another camp in Moosburg, Germany and the artwork never never got back over to them. So I started this whole thing, well maybe I can find Robert Bishop Well it turns out through my, my research Robert Bishop wasn't the fellow that originally created that first design. It was originally created by a bombardier, a B-17 bombardier named Emmett Cook Emmett Cook had been shot down on a raid over Palermo Harbor in Italy and he was captured by goat herders he ended up at Luft 3. He took part in helping plan the great escape. Um, he never made it out of the camp, luckily, because, you know, of the 70-odd men that, were, that, that made it out, over 50 were executed by the Gestapo upon their recapture. Only three men made it back to safety out of the 70, I can't remember, 72, 76, or 78 that got out. But anyhow, Emmett created the design in his YMCA diary and then on a postcard that he sent to his mother in June of 1943. And when that postcard made it into the mail system, that's where other prisoners of war saw it, and then they also saw it in his diary as well. So he started drawing it on postcards and on letters and in other prisoner of war diaries as well. And his was the original. His was the very first one. I tracked him down, and we had a fantastic friendship until he passed away a few years ago. Um, he shared just some amazing stories with me about his, his time in the military and his time as a prisoner of war. One day I phoned him up, and he was you know we were talking, and I said, what are you up to today? And he goes, oh, I'm just going through my stuff. I'm just uh, throwing out a bunch of stuff. And I said, well, what are you throwing out? And he goes, oh, I'm getting rid of all the letters that I sent home to my mom during the war. And I said, what? You're throwing those out? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, don't throw them out. I said, you know, give them to me or give them to a military museum or, you know, just don't throw them out. Well, he ended up giving them to me, and they're, they unto themselves are amazing documents because there's postcards and letters. In, in one of the letters, he actually sewed little tiny photographs that the Germans had taken of men in the camp. Um, he sewed it onto the, the letter so his parents could see him actually in the camp. And, and what's amazing about Emmett is one day a letter showed up on my doorstep, totally unexpected, and I opened it up, and it was the first postcard that he had sent home to his mom in june of 1943 and it was the postcard that had the donald duck insignia on it that he had drawn for the first time
0: wow that would have been a shame to lose those i mean talk about history
1: oh no it's and it's amazing how much stuff ends up in landfills um it's really quite sad actually the good thing about emmett is his son was in the air force as well although his son never really showed an interest in his dad's military history from what I can gather Uh, when Emmett passed away he gave his son the diary that he had and and Emmett shared photographs of the diary with me and and that in and of itself is an amazing document Emmett was a fantastic artist he did portrait pictures of all of his barracks mates he did uh, comic drawings he kept track of the food that they ate the, the holidays that they celebrated he was part of the camp softball team so it's just a fantastic document unto itself but I'm glad to say that his son took it and he donated it to the Air Force Academy in Colorado and it's part of the archives there. Mm-hmm. For me, I was overjoyed to get the, the postcard and I said, are you sure you want to give this to me? Are you sure there's nobody in the family? I never asked for it. And he said, no. He goes, I know it's something that you would appreciate and, and cherish. So, you know, it's it's an important part of my collection. I had one other veteran do that, and a fellow by the name of Virgil Greer. He was on a boat called the USS Escambia. It was a fast fleet refueler that saw action down in the South Pacific. They carried bunker oil and high-octane fuel for the aircraft carriers, for the planes on the, on the carriers. And um, they had written to the Disney Studio in '43, I think it was, and the Disney Studio responded, their combat insignia is Jose Carioca on, uh, floating on a 50-gallon oil drum, and on top of the oil drum is one of those old gravity-fed gasoline pumps. And Jose Carioca is hanging on to that. And on the lit globe at the top of the gas pump is the letter E, which stood for the Cambia. Mm-hmm. And Virgil and I struck up a, a conversation. I've, I've interviewed probably 50 or so veterans. I used to write for a, a magazine called World War II. I had my own call on my good feature stories. I did interviews with veterans. And, and any chance I got to talk to a World War II veteran, I would. Not just about their, their war career, but what it was like growing up in the, in the Great Depression You know the experiences that their family had at that point in time as well and uh, um, sadly I got a, a note from an email from Virgil's daughter and it turned out that Virgil had been diagnosed with throat cancer and he passed away two weeks later and in the letter his daughter said that my father wanted you to have some things can you give me your address so I said you know you know I obviously expressed my condolences gave her my address And a couple of weeks later, a package showed up on my doorstep, and it was the original finished art that was created by Hank Porter. It's the color art that would have been, it was sent to the unit, it was sent to the men on the boat after Hank Porter had created the design. Wow. And also included was a little um, American pottery statue of Jose Carioca that Virgil had on his desk. Virgil was a yeoman, so they did a lot of clerical work on the boat, and, um the foot on the on the little statue had been broken off and re on, and Virgil always thought that Jose should have gotten uh, a Purple Heart because um, it was during a huge typhoon that uh, Jose got knocked off the desk and fell, fell onto the floor. But he sent me the correspondence from the Disney studio regarding the insignia, he sent me the original finished artwork, and then he sent me the little statue of, uh, of Jose Carioca as well. And again, and it- it's, it, it's, a, it's an honor to me, to be the caretaker of those types of items. They're, they're nothing that I would ever sell. They're nothing that I would ever trade away. You know, my lovely wife and I have three children. My children have expressed an interest in in all of my different collections of Disney stuff because I don't just collect Disney War stuff. I collect 1930s Disney memorabilia as well. So I'm hoping that... I'm going to be successful in imparting my knowledge and the sense of history to my children and and they'll they'll continue to be the caretakers of these items and hopefully get them out into the public where they can be displayed and and seen by other people. I'm not the type of guy that likes to have a collection and cloister it away in a dark room and never show it off. You know, there's a risk in showing stuff off. You you risk somebody breaking to, into your house and stealing things, but I think it's my duty to share the history especially this World War II history with people, so they don't forget the sacrifices that that generation went through to ensure that we enjoy the freedoms that we do today. And um, to, to get something like that from a veteran is really, you know, I, I'm, almost, <laughs> I'm almost on the verge of tears right now because it, it's such an emotional thing for me to get something like that from somebody like that because yeah. it's totally unexpected. I never ask for anything like that, so it's, it's quite an honor to be that, bestowed for something like
0: that. Definitely, that's very meaningful. And, and for um, visitors to San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf, if you go to tour the World War II submarine USS Pampanito, you can see an example of the Walt Disney Studios emblems because there is one on the bow of the USS Pampanito.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was one of uh, 31, the Disney Studio did 31 submarine insignia during the war, and that was, that was definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this- there's a, I believe there's a submarine museum in Pearl Harbor as well, and it has some of the battle flags on display, and some of those battle flags feature Disney combat insignia mm-hmm. as well.
0: There's much more that David has to share with us about the Walt Disney Studios and World War II. Please join us next week when David and I continue our conversation. However, if you wish to learn more about the Disney Studios and World War II, please look in our show notes for links to David's book, uh, Service with Character, the Disney Studio and World War II, also to his Facebook page, and a link to our previous conversation on the Walt Disney Hyperion Studios. That concludes this segment of The Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening, and be magical.